Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Don't go there. That's the other place. That's the other side. That's upside down, back to front world. That's the domain of something else. In this podcast, we come face to face with the reflections of another world. Learning ancient lessons of wealth, relationships, and responsibilities, rubbing shoulders with an elite group of thinkers whose power and knowledge spread right across the British Isles to Gaul and beyond, discover a hoard of incredible artefacts that spanned ages, bringing a magical lake to life. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week you took our imaginations to Dover to board the oldest known seagoing boat in the world. Where's the next stop on our journey? Well, today, Paul, we're leaving the south coast and heading inland and north to Wales and to one of the most magical lakes in the British Isles. It's a place of treasure and ritual and its importance spans the Bronze and Iron Ages. It's Hlynvaur in the Cynon Valley. It's a fairly remote spot when you get there. It's proper countryside. It's a reservoir, a lake of water in the shadow of a small mountain with a fairly steep face on it. So at different times of the day, this reservoir is is cast into shadow, which makes the water look quite black and quite mysterious. It's, It's a reservoir now and has been since work was done in the early part of the 20th century. But but there was always a lake there. There was always a natural body of water. It's just that in about 1913, modern people wanting control over a water supply, they dammed the natural lake there and so built up a a reliable supply of water. But there, there always was a lake there. And as things turned out, it was somewhere that had mattered to people for a very long time. There's always been 
and even even still for I suppose modern people today, there there can be something quite mysterious or evocative about reflections. You know, people can be quite are quite fascinated by their own reflection. You know, you walk into you walk into a lift in a department store or an office block, and there's mirrors, and, and you you know you can't help but look at yourself. It's it's, it's a natural draw. I often think we're a bit like we're a bit like budgies or or uh, <laughs> wee birds in a cage. You know, for giving a mirror, it, it, it distracts us for a few seconds. So there's always been and always will be something quite fascinating about catching a glimpse of yourself. And uh, you know, we're used to mirrors. We take for granted that there are these surfaces of glass which which give us back a a, a back to front, left is right, right is left image of ourselves and. You, the, the mirrors that we're used to are glass with a very thin coating of aluminium, actually, on one side. And it's that which gives the, the very perfect reflection that we're used to. But nonetheless, I mean, most people know that when you're looking at yourself, it's back to front. You know, it, it's a, it's a, there's something strange about the world. You know, everything is wrong and letters and words are, are, in, are back to front and all the rest of it. But for people in the past they might only have caught their reflection in water. You know, until there's the modern technology that we've got, you wouldn't have these perfect reflections and people wouldn't be so accustomed to seeing their own image. You know, far less the sort of things we take for granted now, but you see yourself on on little films all the time that that you shoot on your phone. Uh, You can take that for granted now. And and that's a relatively recent development, but for the longest time, people have, have been used to seeing themselves in really good mirrors. But thousands of years ago, Ordinary people might only have been able to catch a reflection of themselves in water, in a pond, or a lake, or a river. For some, it's been possible to very carefully polish metal, be it bronze or, or whatever else. And if you, if you buff it up as, as good as possible on a, on a very smooth, flat surface of, of bronze, for example, you can get a reflection. But no matter how hard you try, it's not going to be as good as the sort of reflection that you get from a glass mirror. And that's where you get the, the expression, well, it's, it's in the Bible, uh, it's in Corinthians, uh, for now we see through a glass darkly. And that was a, a, an acceptance, an acknowledgement of the fact that any looking glass or, or, or simple mirror gave you a dark reflection. And so for the ancients, for people who were using maybe reflective metal, what they looked at, they might not have just accepted that they were looking at themselves. It may have seemed that they were looking at or catching a glimpse of another world. That a polished that a polished surface was was providing a kind of a, a portal or a porthole even into into another sort of parallel universe where things were recognizable but a little bit round the wrong way. And so likewise on looking into the very smooth surface of a deep lake, it might have suggested to people that they weren't looking at a reflection of themselves, but they were looking at some kind of other world, the surface of another world. So there might have been a, a magical associations with the reflected world. Now, in another location, I mean, the, the place we're talking about is this uh, is Llinvawr in, in Mid Glamorgan in Wales. But in 2001, uh, archaeologists working in a, at, a, at a site in Yorkshire with the luxuriant name of Wet Wang Slack, 
<laughs> yeah, always gets a laugh, that one. Um, they, they found the burial, the elaborate burial of a woman, uh, and she had been buried with a chariot, a dismantled chariot, but the wheels and the and the stave and whatever of a of a chariot, and she, she's obviously been someone of significance. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna bury something like that with just anyone. Uh, and she had other accoutrements, other uh, wealth with her in the ground, including behind her under her head. Uh, the remains of what had been a bronze mirror, a flat plate of bronze, and it was quite it was quite beautifully made, severely corroded. It was she was probably she probably went into the ground something like three hundred years before the birth of Christ. Uh, so this this object had been in the ground for a long time, and, and in no way was it a mirror anymore. But archaeologists had speculated that this is what it may have been, and it's easy to think that it's vanity that we're talking about, that it's a woman wanting a looking glass. And that's possible. It, it may have been the case that, that she had this as a as something that she could see, albeit dimly, albeit darkly, a reflection of herself. But given what we've been talking about, it, it's also at least possible that she had it for some other reason. And it may well have been the case that her status and her importance uh, was was to do in some way with her being able to see into the other realm, maybe a realm of the spirits, uh, maybe the realm of the future. Who knows what imaginative people thought about the image in a reflective surface. So she may have been someone who amongst her people was regarded as having an ability to, to, to make contact maybe with the spirits of the dead or with gods, ancestors, catch a glimpse of the future, who knows. Uh, but it seems it seems possible that she went into the ground with a looking glass. We say mirror, but another older expression is a looking glass, which kind of broadens out what a mirror might be for. You know, a look, looking glass is somehow more evocative. People have invested significance in mirrors for a long time and treated them differently. There was famously Queen Elizabeth the first the most famous English queen of them all, probably. Amongst the many advisors that she kept around her uh, was a, a man called Dr John Dee, who was a, he was a mathematician, he was a clever, a learned man. He was an, a, 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 obviously at that time, uh, great significance was still placed on the study of the stars, astrology. Uh, and she would have consulted someone like Dr Dee when it, when it came to maybe choosing a, a good date for an important ceremony. She would have gone to an astrologer and had him suggest, well, if I was you, I would do it two weeks on Wednesday because I think the, you know, the stars will be in alignment or whatever. And John Dee, famously, uh, he kept and used a mirror of black obsidian, which is a volcanic glass. It had its origins uh, in the kingdom of the Aztecs in South America, but it had come into his possession. Uh, and it was known that he, although he didn't think that he had the ability himself to, to look into it and to make contact with the spirit world, he employed other people who could, scryers, or as we would say, mediums. And so he employed people who he, he thought had the ability to look into this object and make predictions and make, and make contact with the spirit. So, so there in the time of Queen Elizabeth, we've got this kind of mysterious faith in reflective surfaces. At the highest level of government. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's all of that. You know, the woman in wet wang slack with her chariot and her mirror, uh, Dr. John Dee advising Queen Elizabeth. It's just to give you a kind of a background to the way in which the reflected world has has mattered in significant ways to people in the past and not even particularly the distant past. And so it's important to have that kind of thought going in your head when you consider what what we know was happening at, at Hlinvaur, this this lake. And we know that in the in the centuries well before the birth of Christ, so what we call the first millennium BC, the people living in the vicinity of this lake, Hlinvaur, they regarded it with some particular magical or, or or maybe in their language, scientific significance. When those workmen, those 20th century workmen in 1913, started the work to to dam the lake and make the, the reservoir that's there to this day, they started finding objects that had been put into the lake, thrown into the lake during that first millennium BC. Uh, and it was things like uh, axes, a spearhead, razor blades, sickles, which are the implements that you use for harvesting crops, made of bronze, significantly. Uh, also a, a wonderful cauldron, uh, a very large cauldron made of beaten copper, uh, so large that it would have been uh, something that people could have used to cook enough food for hundreds of people at a time. So uh, something that would have been called into play for big and important festivals. It's probably an exotic, which is to say an import from somewhere in Europe. Probably wasn't made. Probably wasn't made in Wales. It'd probably been acquired. So it's 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 representative of, indicative of of long distance contacts, you know, and, and a, a very prestigious item having come from far away and being in the possession of these people. The majority of the items, many, many, many of them, it's called the Chlinvaur hoard. You know, there were innumerable items were found, mostly of bronze, but a couple of them were iron. So this activity, this this behaviour of, of putting metal objects into the lake, it started during the time of bronze, and then it continued even into that period when those people now had contact with and were making use of iron. Okay, so it, it kind of it, it straddles both worlds, if you like, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So that, that practice of, of putting valuables into the lake lasted a very, very long time. And even when they made the transition and started using iron, they continued to be in the habit of doing this. And it's always been a, a mystery. We've always we've known that people were doing this kind of sacrifice for a very, very long time and all over the world. It's been a facet, a feature of human behaviour. It seems incomprehensible to us. You know, why would you take if you've if you've got people for whom me, a metal object like a like an axe head or a or a sword or a spearhead would be very valuable. You know, met, metal would be hard to come by, and to be treasured and probably passed down. Things probably had names, and probably had stories related to them. And so to finally take the step of throwing it. Dropping it into deep water seems utterly bizarre because you need these things. For a long time, archaeologists and others have, have speculated that it's 
some kind of awareness of the need to settle a debt or perhaps to pay forward in hopes of the future being kind to you when it arrives. So the thinking is that maybe a, maybe a community have been successful in a battle. Maybe there's recently been a battle with a neighbouring community or a neighbouring tribe. They've won and so they, they want to give thanks. They want to, to, to settle the debt because the gods or, or the ancestors have been on their side. So at a time like that, you, they may have gone to the lake and, and offered up some valuables to say thank you. Or alternatively, they may have been in a time of famine or a time of disease and they want help. So you go to the lake and offer up something valuable in the hope that you'll get the, the resolution that you want. Or maybe you pay it forward. Maybe you think if we take our, our swords and knives now and drop them in the lake, the future will reward us. And maybe, maybe the reward won't come to us. Maybe it'll come to our children. Because the future, when it arrives, will remember that we offered up things that we need now. That tradition of, of surrendering things of value continued right up into the modern world. It's still there. I mean, for example, there are, there are tribes uh, of, the, of the Native Americans on the Pacific west coast of Canada who were right up into the modern era and, in, and, and still to this day, in fact, have a ceremony called potlatch. It usually takes place when there's a big event in the life of the community, so something like a birth of a baby or a marriage uh, or a death, or maybe it's a time when two tribes are, are establishing a peace or a, or a treaty between themselves and they might mark it with a potlatch. It's sometimes about a gift-giving ceremony you might gather everyone together and someone within the group, maybe a very uh, aristocratic senior figure, will have gathered together great wealth. Maybe lots of knives, lots of axe heads, lots of whatever is valuable to the people, food. And it's, it's distributed amongst the group with, with gay abandon. You know, it's all given away. Great, great wealth. You know, a fortune, if you like, that's been gathered together by one person is, is given out to the group. And the idea is that everyone who's in receipt of your, of your generosity is, is automatically placed in your debt. So maybe you invite 500 people and at great cost to yourself, you give every one of them gifts and you feed them and you give them great valuable objects. And when every one of those 500 people goes away, it's kind of like buying a round. <laughs> now you've got 500 people who, who owe you a round. And theoretically, all, all of those people are now in your debt. And in order to settle the debt, we'd have to invite you to a potlatch. And, and they wouldn't just, it, wouldn't, it might not be enough just to equal your generosity. They might have to up the ante. So the potlatch gets bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on because the next person needs to give out even more. And, and sometimes, as well as those items being given as gifts, sometimes there's there's destruction. Sometimes the things are just are, are are also destroyed or burned, or in some other way disposed of. So in essence, it's about showing that you have the a status and a prestige based on how much wealth you can gather, and then seemingly without a care, 
and give it away. And you yourself are left with nothing. But you're not left with nothing because what you now have in your account is all that debt from all those other people. If you go to New Guinea, uh, there are tribes there that in the modern era were going through a ceremony called Mocha, which is very similar. People get gathered together and there's a great uh, giving of generosity by one person, one big man, who shows his status and his prestige by how many pigs and everything else he can gather together at one time and give away or slaughter or consume or whatever. And again, it's the same idea. Every, every person who's in receipt of the generosity is now in debt. So it, it's a different way of understanding wealth. Our billionaires... We admire them and are, are in awe of them because of how much they own. You know, Jeff Bezos of Amazon or, or Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, you know, we've all read in the newspapers about how many tens and hundreds of billions of pounds they're worth. We're fascinated by how much they themselves have. You, it's, about, it's about accumulating and hold, hoarding wealth. That's what we aspire to do. Well, it, it seems pretty clear that for the longest time in the past, you demonstrated your status and your significance by how much you could give away. Because it's, it's establishing this, all everyone in your community and in the surrounding area is in debt to you. And those debts will be have to be honoured. Or that person who doesn't honour the debt will be diminished in everybody else's eyes. It's a different way about thinking about what it means to be important and what it means to be rich. How strange that we think about it in terms of holding on to billions, but for the longest time our ancestors thought about it in terms of how much they could gather together and either give away or, better yet, put into the lake and for it never to be seen again. And it's, to me, the, the thing I always think about when I go to somewhere like Hlenvauer and you look, into the, you look into the lake there and you look at the dark water and you imagine the people doing it, whatever the occasion was, giving thanks or in a time of need, the people gather on the lake. Maybe, maybe they row out in boats or maybe they just stand on the edge and they, they throw in valuable objects into the water. And I'm always fascinated by the idea that the people looking on, they knew that those things were there. There's a sword in there. It looked like a nice one. You know, and that woman there, she took off a necklace and she threw that in. I saw where it landed. But, but we know because it, it, they stay there until the archaeologists or whoever come and get them thousands of years later. That even though people know that these... And this doesn't happen once. This happens again and again and again. These, these lakes were sometimes like banks, like the Federal Reserve, full of valuables. But no one, it would seem, ever went in and tried to get it back. They're left, and everybody knows they're there. And sometimes they're not even in particularly deep water. But nobody, it would appear, goes in and tries to take it away because, because they understand in a profound and fundamental way that these things no longer belong to the living. They've gone into that other world, which, that other world that sometimes you don't just catch a glimpse of in the surface of the lake, but you might catch a glimpse of it in the polished surface of a shield or some other sheet of metal. You catch a glimpse, that's the other world. You don't go there. That's the other side. That's upside down, back to front world. We don't go there. 
That's the domain of something else. And so the sanctity of that place is, is remembered, you know, ever after. Does it have a special atmosphere that you get a sense of when you go? Yes, a place like a place like Glenvower, you definitely can. It's a, a I suppose we think of we of the British Isles, we we kind of imbue from childhood a sense about certain places. So even if you haven't been to Wales, you know that we associate certain things with Wales, like legend and dragons, you know, and singing. We, we have associations with what it is to be Welsh. And so there's that kind of, sort of mythological mysteriousness about thinking about Welsh legend. Well, when you go to when you go to Llanvawr, it looks right. It's this steep-sided mountain, and it casts this dark shadow over this lake, and it creates this this lake that, at certain times of the day or, or at certain times of the year, it could be as black as as Japanese lacquer or oil. You know, it's this dark surface, uh, and it's it can be very you know if the wind's not blowing on it, it can be very smooth. And so there's a, there's an air of there's an air of mystery about it, and there is another element, another side to to the way in which I think we have understood something other about Wales and Welshness, uh, and it's it's this it's the association that it has with druidry. You know, anyone who's 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 read a bit of Roman history knows that at one stage the Romans came and they made war on the Druids in Anglesey. And there was a bit of a, you know, there was a bit of a determination on the part of the Romans to stamp out the Druids, uh, and there's people speculate to this day who are the Druids, who were the Druids, what did they do? We know that they really existed because no lesser figure than Julius Caesar wrote about them. Julius Caesar, who spent time in the British Isles in the decades before the birth of Christ, he encountered Druidry. Uh, and it was, it was in its, it was in its latter days. By the time Julius Caesar was in the British Isles, and it had a, and it had a history and a story running back for, for who knows how long. So the Druids, we know that it, they're not just a, a, a legend; they are real, and it would appear that they were a great font of learning. The Druids had an understanding of the law the law of the people, so that in, the, in, in times of dispute or perhaps when a, when a king or a, or a big man needed advice, he would go to the Druids and expect them to apply their wisdom to a, to a challenging or problematic situation. Uh, they understood astronomy and astrology. They knew about medicine or the, or the lore of, of how to use different plants and other preparations, you know, for treating illnesses. They were kind of ancient polymaths. You know, they, they, they had an understanding of many subjects. And when, when Julius Caesar encountered them, he recognised Druidry because he had already encountered it in Gaul, which is to say the territory on the European continent that's now France. And he had learned from the Druids in Gaul that if you were very serious about being a Druid and you wanted to, as it were, go and take your master's degree, you went to Britain. Druidry 
if it was a religion or a science or, a, or some kind of combination of the two in the ancient minds, it, it seems that it had originated in the British Isles. And that if you, were, if you wanted to reach the peak of your skill, you went to the British Isles to study it there. There's a line, there's a line from Julius Caesar that runs, this institution is supposed to have been devised in Britain and to have been brought over from it into Gaul. This is the words of Caesar. And now those who desire to gain a more accurate knowledge of that system generally proceed thither for the purpose of studying it. So the Druids were a source of great learning, great knowledge. You know, we tend to, if if people think about them at all, they maybe have caught glimpses of the reenacted ceremonies that happen at places like Stonehenge, at the time of the summer solstice, you know, there's, there's sometimes the druids turn up and they're wearing the long white robes and they perform these reenacted rituals that are supposed to hark back to times in the distant past. So people can be a bit, um, they laugh up their sleeves a little bit about druids. But the druids were, were serious. And so here in Plinvauer, at that time of the of the deposition of these precious items into the lake, the highest echelon of society at that time would have been the Druids. There would have been warriors and, and perhaps little kings, but behind the throne, the power behind the throne would always have been the Druids. Okay? These were uh, an elite group of very learned people. And so, apart from anything else, apart from tin or copper or, or a visit to an important place like Stonehenge or the Ness of Brodgar. There was a time, a long time, when people may have come to these British Isles in search of wisdom. It's like the ultimate university. The best place, or one of the best places in which to do that, might have been here in these islands. You came to seek out the Druids to learn what they had learned. What are the Horde's artefacts like in real life? Because I've made television documentaries about them, I've had the opportunity to actually to handle them. But they're on display. You know, you can go to museums in Wales and see pieces from the Glenvauer Horde, the Glenvauer collection. Another aspect about them uh, that's always mystified archaeologists is that a lot of the pieces that came out of Glenvauer were in pretty good condition, given the fact that they'd been in water for you know, a couple of thousand years or more. But very often, and in, in the case of some of the pieces from Glenvauer, but very often these items that have been sacrificed in that way, they're broken, deliberately bent. You'll get, you'll get swords and, and knives that have been deliberately bent double, you know, over a stone or over someone's knee, bent until they break or, or hammered out of shape or deliberately damaged to underline and that seems, why would you do that? Well, it seems that it, it, it's part of underlining a transformation that is taking place. That this item, which was once the possession of humankind, that time has finished. And it's about to become the possession of whatever, the spirits, the ancestors, whoever lives through in that other world. It's going to be theirs now. And so it's broken and put into the water but a lot of the pieces that came out of Clinvower are actually perfect 
which which again just you know is mystifying why you would go for for years knowing that there were there was important and valuable metal artifacts in that water but they were never touched not even by the people who knew they were there such was the reverence in which they were regarded once that transformation had taken place and they were now in the in the realm of the gods of the, of the spirits of the ancestors As a species, we're still fascinated with lakes, aren't we? Yeah. It's not even just lakes. I mean, people will go to... You watch it on a, on a Saturday in a garden centre where there's a well with water in it and kids will throw coins in. Even some adults. Or if you go to a, or if you go to a fountain, you know, in a city, you know, some ancient fountain in Rome or Paris, you look into the water, there's metal there. People do it. People do it instinctively. It's some kind of echo, some relic of a time, I think, when people regarded what was in the water, under the water, as, as another place. You know, we do things like wild swimming, you know, jump into these reservoirs and go swimming, or we, or we swim in the sea. Well, it hasn't always been like that. People had neither the time nor the inclination to, you know, swim for recreation. So the water would have been a, a, a mysterious domain which no one penetrated except maybe some unfortunate soul that drowned. It was another world. It's a portal into another world. And even in our modern 21st century consciousness, people have a little bit of reverence for or sense of magic around deep, dark water. And how many times have you seen some, some child come running up to a parent on the, beside a loch or beside a, a lake asking for a coin because they want to throw it into the water How do you approach looking at historical artefacts like these? The fascination for me, I think when I go to museums and I see objects sometimes the object itself is so beautiful or spectacular that you're in awe of it but often in the case of the smallest, most corroded, insignificant object, very quickly I'm thinking about who owned it. You know, whose possession was it? That's what, that's what makes the object fascinating and valuable to me. In addition to or greater than it being gold or silver or, or, or beautifully made, the pricelessness of it is in, is in speculating about whose it was. Who made it? And who then owned it? And how many hands did it pass through? How many people in the past cherished it? And then, in the case of these items that come from hordes that have been buried in the ground or, or put into water, who made the decision to give it up? That, that interests me much more than any kind of monetary value. Or, it's, or, or any aesthetic uh, beauty that the thing might have. You, you know, Julian Barnes, the, the, the novelist, you know, he wrote in a novel called Metroland, objects contain absent people. And they do. So what holds my imagination, holds my gaze, is, is not the object, but speculating about the absent people.
an island off Ireland, a place of great power and beauty, its shoulder set hard against the mighty Atlantic Ocean, shifting land and mystery, high on the dramatic coastline. Two and a half thousand years or so after they were built, sit two stone forts of breathtaking splendour. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research was carried out by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. The photography is the work of Neil R. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF podcast production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.